Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Oh, I thought after last week with Verlin, y'all had gotten really good at that. Let's try it again. Good morning. Yeah, there we go. So I don't know if you know this, but Mount Elbert is the tallest mountain in the Rocky Mountains. It stands at over 14,000 feet tall. It's it's got a really nice summit that you can hike up to, many trails that'll lead you there. It'll take you about seven hours to trek up to the top of Mount Elbert. And about a year and a half ago, there was this young man who was going on a hike, and he set out about nine o'clock that morning and was hiking to the top of Mount Elbert. At some point, as it got closer to nightfall, he lost his way, and by the time it got dark, he had not returned back to his car. So somebody alerted the authorities, and they sent out a search rescue team and they searched for him all night long at about three o'clock in the morning they decided to call off the search when they could not find him but they started back again at daybreak well around 10 o'clock the next morning this young man showed up back at his car and the authorities came to him and they said are you okay yeah he's fine and they said we've been out searching for you all night long he said whoa I had I had no idea anybody was looking for me they said yeah we tried to call you multiple times through the night why didn't why didn't you answer your phone he said well I didn't recognize the number of course right Because, you know, you have to watch out for those spam calls, especially when you're lost on a mountain. The only thing that would have made that worse is if he had actually answered the phone and the person on the other line had said, we've been looking for you, would not have worked. If you've gotten one of those calls, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, there we go. Now you got it. So we're starting today a brand new series called Lost and Found. And over the next four weeks, we're going to spend time looking at three really powerful stories that we read about in Luke chapter 15. Now, if you've grown up in church or you've been in church a while, you're probably familiar with Luke 15 and instantly you're like, oh yeah, I love those stories. In fact, we just watched, I love the Chosen's representation of how that story could have possibly been played out in the life of Jesus. Obviously, there's a little bit of conjecture, but I just think it puts a good image on the screen and gives us a good idea. And maybe in your heart, you're like, I love these stories. They're so heartfelt. Warming. They remind us of how lost things are found and lost people come home. And if you read Luke 15 with a really warm heart, then I'm going to challenge you this morning and over the next couple of weeks because, well, Luke 15 is not given to us to warm our hearts. In fact, I really like what Tim Keller said. He said the goal of this series of parables is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. And so these are actually some of the most challenging stories that we will ever read, especially those of us who have grown up in church our entire life and those of us who have been doing this church thing for a really long time. So I hope you'll be with us for this journey. Let's start in Luke 15 in the first two verses because this sets the stage for everything that Jesus is going to teach us. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now let me ask you this, do you have any kind of shock value in Luke 15 verse 1? Like when you read that Jesus hung out with and was surrounded by an with tax collectors and sinners, do you have any side of you that is just completely appalled? Probably not. You probably read that and you go, oh, how nice. Look at what our Lord 
does. But in this time, in the ancient Near East, to sit down at a table with someone of a bad reputation, it basically means that you are accepting that individual. You're accepting everything about them. That's why these these groups of people had such a hard time receiving what Jesus was doing. Now, in this text, we have two categories of people. The first category is represented in the tax collectors and sinners. Now, you've probably learned if you've grown up going to VBS about tax collectors, and the person that comes to your mind, aside from maybe Matthew, was that, what was his name? Zacchaeus, we love Zacchaeus, he's a wee little man, especially us short folks are like, yes, love Zacchaeus because Jesus loves short people and there's no stories about anybody in the Bible that was tall where, where it worked out really well for them. Short people did good in the Bible, so I love Zacchaeus, he's a great little guy and, and it makes us feel good, but in their culture, to be a tax collector, you were a traitor. You had sold yourself to the Roman government, you had paid money to enter into business with them to go and collect taxes from your own Israelites. And by collecting taxes, you are taking money from your own countrymen to pay for a government you didn't ask for, for them to occupy the land that you feel they have no right to be in. That was the tax collector. Now let's go to that other term, sinner. Would you be offended? Would you get up and storm out if I said, you're a sinner? Probably not. In fact, we've gotten really good with that concept, and we know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so to be called a sinner is really not that big of a deal. It's not that offensive, to be honest with you. In this culture, it would have been very offensive, because being a sinner was not talking about how you had kind of missed the mark morally. It would be describing a class of people, because in this group known as the sinners were people who had bad vocations, illegal vocations. We got children in the room. I'm not going to press that topic too much. You just use your imagination, adults. But also in that category were people who had different types of deformities, other types of diseases, those who were suffering from mental illnesses. Those were all considered part of the class of people that were called sinners. If you had leprosy, you were considered a sinner. If you were you were considered a sinner because somebody in your life, whether it was your parents or grandparents or whether you yourself had sinned and therefore God was punishing you with whatever ailment you were dealing with and they had been outcast. In fact, one commentator said that they called this group of people the people of the land because a lot of them were homeless. And this commentator said that if you were to allow your daughter to marry one of these people, one of these groups of people that were known as sinners, you might as well be exposing her to a lion. There was some shock value in what Jesus was doing in the fact that he was hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners. These were the types of people you've raised your children to stay away from. And yet, not only was our Lord hanging out with them, but they were drawn to him. They were being attracted to Jesus. Now, that's the first category, the moral outsiders. The other category of people that's present on this day are the moral insiders. These are the Pharisees and the scribes, or some, some translations say the teachers of the law. Now, let's just be honest about these people. They're better than you and I. I'm not talking about like, in, oh, they think they're better. No, no, no. They are better than you and I. They are way better at this whole religion thing than you or your I ever will be. They fasted at least three times a week, a week. They gave. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, completely memorized it. Most of us that started out the year with a goal to read through the Bible in a year, we got when we got to Leviticus. Most of 
us read it enough times to memorize it, right? They were so devoted to following the law of God that on the Sabbath day, they would count their steps to make sure they didn't walk over a certain number to be guilty of violating the Sabbath and to be working on that day. Can you imagine counting the number of steps you take on a Saturday? That's how devoted they were to following God and to following his word. They put the bar very high on what it means to follow God in a physical, mental standpoint. And they were appalled by those who were there on that day. And the reason why Jesus tells these two parables is not just to make this group of moral outsiders, the sinners and the tax collectors, feel better about themselves. Really what he's doing is he's trying to shatter the categories that his religious elite had created. Now listen to me. If you've been doing this church thing for a while, you're a part of the group of people that Jesus is teaching. And these can be really hard to hear. They're hard for me to hear. Because what Jesus is after is he's trying to teach that what can happen over time as you get more comfortable with the concept of religion is that it can develop this sense of self-righteousness within you. And it can cause you to think things about God that are not true. Now, if you've grown up learning about parables, maybe you've heard that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, and they all are very real stories, very human analogies that were designed to teach you some type of meaning. And that is true, but that's not all of it. What the parables were designed to teach us is about God, about his kingdom, and about how he is radically different than maybe we had ever imagined. And so not all the parables have this nice little meaning that we can tie on at the end, that we can put this little bow and we can say, okay, there's the meaning. Some of them are really difficult to digest and difficult to fully understand, and they make us struggle through and go, is God actually saying says this, then what do I do with this over here? Some of them are really difficult, not only to understand, but to figure out how to apply and to take away the great message at the end. Now, these parables are not difficult to understand, but boy, they hard to live out. So we've already read the first one about the lost sheep and we watched the video. Let's talk about this second one that Jesus tells, because I want to cover both of these today. The second one that he tells is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. If she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently search for it until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls all of her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me. I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, there's a couple of different takeaways as to what this story could be about. One could be that she had just simply lost a coin. Now, in their time, one coin was representative of one day's wage. So think about whatever you make in 10 days, in a week and a half worth of pay, take a tenth of that, and you tell me if you had lost that amount of money, whatever it is, would you be searching for it? My guess is the answer to that is, if you had 10 and you dropped a quarter, you might be like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to tear apart my house to find the quarter. But if you had lost a tenth of your income for the next week and a half, I'm going to guess you're going to tear up your house to try to find it. That's one idea. Now, Barclay in his commentary has got a great takeaway when it comes to this parable. He said there may have been a much more romantic reason. The mark of a married woman in this culture was a headdress made of 10 silver coins linked together by a silver chain. For years, maybe a girl would scrape and save to amass her 10 coins, for the headdress was almost the equivalent of her wedding ring. When she had it, it was so inalienably hers that it could not even be taken for her to pay a debt. 
It may well be that it was one of these coins that the woman had lost, so she searched for it as any woman would search for her lost wedding ring. That kind of puts a different perspective on it, does it not? Now, I can't say that I have torn apart my house because I'm on, I think, Haley will have to correct me, at least my fourth wedding band. Uh, and we've been married for 16 years. So that's not a good ratio on the number of wedding bands that I've gone through in our years of marriage. Uh, but we did lose a diamond out of hers, out of her engagement or wedding band, I forget. And we searched diligently for it. Unfortunately, we never found it. So it worked out well for her. She got a different wedding band. But we tore the house. We looked everywhere for that thing because not only of the financial value of that, but the sentimental value, what it means. And what the point of the story that Jesus is making is that any of God's children who have been lost... God searches because they have intrinsic value. Now I'm going to pause right here because I think there's a word that in Christian culture we have lost and stopped using as much. I know I have and I shouldn't. And that is the word lost. We don't use the word lost as much anymore when we're talking about those who don't follow Jesus. And I don't know if maybe because we thought it was insensitive or whatever, but... I think it's a word we need to reclaim because it's the word that Jesus is trying to communicate to us for those who are not following God, for those who have not made Jesus their Lord, for those who have not been baptized into Christ, the word that the Bible uses is lost. And if you've ever been lost, you know the feeling that sinks into your heart when you come to that realization, I'm lost and I don't know where I'm at and I don't know where I'm going and I don't know how to get there. That's what it means, right? If you're headed somewhere and you don't know how to get there, you are lost. Or if you don't realize that you don't know where you're going, you are lost. And if either of those situations is true, you will not wind up where you are wanting to get to. Now, the danger is, is that you can be lost without realizing it. You can think you know where you're going only to realize you're not gonna make it where you thought you were headed. That is the way that the Bible describes those who are not following Jesus. You think you know where you are headed. You think your life is headed in the direction that you want, but it's a complete deception from the enemy. And as a result, you are lost. You are lost because you are not living the way that God originally created us to live, and you have bought a lie from the enemy. And that is a state of being lost. And it's a concept that Jesus is addressing and what he's getting at, and here's where this gets so challenging for us, for every one of us, is that if you are far from God, you are lost. If you've done really well trying to stay pretty close to God, you also can be lost and not realize it. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks when we get to talking about the older brother in the parable of the lost son. It's just a reminder that we can each be lost without realizing it. So a couple of categories that Jesus is trying to shatter for us, and especially for those who are listening to these parables. First one is God loves sinners. Now, had you polled the Pharisees during this time, had the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, had you given them a poll, asked them a simple question, does God hate sinners? They would have been unanimous, 100% yes, God hates sinners. In fact, they would have... Old Testament passages that even refer to how God hates certain sinners. But what Jesus had come to display to them is that every individual who is created, who is on this earth, is a child of God. They have been created by God in his image, and he loves every one of them, and he is diligently searching for them. Now, 
Maybe we would agree with that sentiment. Yeah, God loves sinners. But does God love all sinners? You see, if we actually started to name names and talk about the worst of the worst, that might be where we started to get a little bit of disagreement. Even as we go down throughout history and we pick some of the most vile people that have ever walked the face of this earth, people who are doing inhumane things, people who are creating severe injustices and are, who are causing all kinds of chaos in the world, does God love them? Yeah, in some broad sense of the term he does, but you know, if we're just honest, we kind of know what's going to happen in the end anyway. So don't really have to live with a lot of agony over that. What Jesus is after is he is after even the worst of sinners. He is after the most repulsive of individuals that you and I could think of. He's after them. He's searching diligently for them. Because for Jesus, there's only two groups of people. There's not Pharisees and sinners. There's just two groups of people. There are those who have been saved by grace. And there are those who are being pursued by grace. That's it. You might find yourself in the category of people who've been saved by grace. And you might find yourself in the category of an individual who's being pursued by grace. But it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. You're in one of those two categories. You've either been saved by God's grace or you're being pursued by God's grace. The challenge is for us church folks who've been doing this a long time, as we battle that idea of self-righteousness because we just kind of get in the habit of kind of doing some of the same things and we show up to church and we sing the songs and we eat the bread and we drink the juice, put the money in the plate, we do other kinds of events and activities and we kind of start to convince ourselves, really it's the enemy convincing us, that we're doing really, really good and we, not, we can be guilty of not focusing on the heart and what's going on in the heart and we just simply spend time on focusing on all the externals, all the things that I do, not necessarily what's going on inside and it can develop this type of spiritual superiority where if, you don't, if you're not careful, you'll start looking down on other individuals through self-righteousness. And, and it, it's kind of heard in language of like an us versus them or an insider versus outsider mentality. And it's best seen, and I pray it's never seen here. I've seen it at other places, and I just pray that as a group of people, we never forget we are either saved by grace or pursued by grace. But the way that it's seen is when an individual walks through the doors and they're completely lost. They've been living a lifestyle that is not what God would have for them. And they come in, and all of a sudden, there's people who are distant, and we don't receive them with a warm welcome. It's like you've probably seen videos of people who have gone to the hospital, and they're very sick, and they're ignored for hours and hours until finally they pass away there in the very waiting room. Wouldn't it be awful to walk into a hospital and go, what in the world are all these sick people doing here? That'd be one of the craziest things, right? But you know what? If we're honest, we can sometimes be guilty of thinking, why are they here? Let me tell you, because it's a place where broken people go to find healing. It's a place where sick people go to find salvation. And I pray it never happens with us. But listen to me, folks. It can so quickly, if we get caught up in this self-righteous mentality, that can so easily develop. If it couldn't easily develop, Jesus wouldn't have taught about it. And he wouldn't have given us three stories to remind us that it can so quickly invade our mentality and invade our thinking. To where, yeah, we go, God loves sinners. But all of them? Paul would write about this when he said we were utterly helpless. Christ came at just the right time and he died for, and I love this, he died for us sinners. He didn't just die for sinners, he died for us. 
He's pulling us into that category of people. <clears throat> now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though somebody might perhaps die for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for all of us, sending Christ to die for all of us while we were still sinners. God loves sinners because they are all created in his image. And because of that, God actively searches for sinners. Why? Because that's what every good parent does. I've told the story before, so I won't tell it in elaborate detail. But when our oldest daughter, Kinley, was really little, we lost her for a little while at the worst possible place you could lose a child, at Disney World. During like one of the parades, when there's all these people around and we lost her. And I don't remember how long it took. It wasn't for very long, but it felt like an eternity. And we were those parents that you've seen running around frantically shouting our child's name. And when we found her, we felt so much joy because we had so much panic because that's what we do. Now, yeah, later on, we received the worst parent ever award for losing our child at Disney World. Like, how does that even happen? It happens, right? Hopefully not for you, but it did for us. And thankfully, she was too young to even remember that. So hopefully it didn't scar too much. But that's what parents do when you lose your children, right? Is that what God does? He searches. Now, I don't know if God's running around frantically shouting. I don't exactly know what's going on in God's mind because I don't fully understand the mind of God. But here's what I can tell you. In Genesis chapter 3, right after the man and the woman ate the fruit, and they ate that forbidden fruit where they were deceived by the serpent, the very next thing we read is God walking through the garden, and he asks a question. He says, where are you? And it's not because he didn't know where their location was. He's asking where had they gone spiritually? Where are you spiritually? God was searching for them because he wanted to engage in an opportunity, opportunity for reconciliation. That's what God does. Now there's this other passage in Ezekiel 34 that I have no doubt when Jesus tells this story in Luke 15, this passage would have been on the mind of the Pharisees and the scribes. And maybe it would have been kind of like a chilling kind of thing where they go, ooh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I don't know if that was a statement that was directed at me or somebody else. Has that ever happened to you? You're like, I don't know if he's talking to me right now or somebody else. And the answer is yes. That's how they were feeling in, in Ezekiel 34. God gives this statement of kind of prophetic judgment to Israel's leaders all the way back many years before Luke 15. This is what the Lord God says. See, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and total darkness. Why is God having to search for his own sheep? Because Israel's leaders did not do their job. They had not shepherded them correctly to follow after God. They had led the people astray. And finally, God says, enough is enough. There's coming a day where I'm going to search for my own sheep. And I love verse 16. He says, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays. I will bandage the injured. I will strengthen the weak, but I'll destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them, talking about Israel with justice. As Jesus was saying this parable about a lost sheep, and later how in John he's going to describe himself as the good shepherd, he's referencing back to Ezekiel 34. And this judgment that was coming on the religious elite, on the self-righteous, it's coming in the form of Jesus. What Jesus is telling them is he is God in the flesh, actively searching for the lost sheep. Because that's what God does. He searches for his lost sheep. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, he's searching for you. He's actively pursuing you. And he will as long as there is time. If you're here today 
And the person that's on your mind is one of your children. They're not living the way that you know God wants them to. They've kind of turned their back on him. God hasn't turned his back on them. He's actively pursuing your child. His grace is chasing after them day after day, moment after moment. If maybe for you it's your spouse, it's the person you live with, and you're here but they're not, they've kind of gotten discouraged in faith, or maybe they've completely walked away, God's still pursuing them. The person across the street, the person you sit next to on the bus, the person that's across to you from the lunch table, God is actively pursuing them because that's what he does. He's a shepherd looking for his lost sheep. He's a parent searching for his lost children because he loves you and he loves them. And it just might be that he's placed you right in their path so that they can experience his grace for the very first time. That's why it's important for those of us who have been saved by grace to live out grace every day so that others can see God's grace shining through us and they can experience it for the very first time. And as his grace grips their heart, God just might be using you to be that river of grace and love to flow into their life. It's why every moment, every conversation, every relationship should be cared for, should be viewed as a divine opportunity, not to show judgment, but to show his love, to remind them that their heavenly father is actively searching and he will continually. Now, here's the third category. And I'll be honest with you, this third one, I love it. I just don't know what to do with it. Heaven celebrates when a sinner repents. I like that idea, don't you? That's really encouraging. And so should we, and I really like that too. I just don't know what to do with this if I can be completely transparent with you this morning. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, Jesus says, I tell you, this is from Jesus. By his authority, right? We all agree he is Lord over all. This is his authority speaking. I tell you, in the same way, have you ever gone to a welcome home party? Maybe it was a friend or family member who was in the military. They've been deployed. They've been overseas for half a year, a year, maybe longer, and they're finally home and they decided to throw a welcome home party and so you gather at somebody's house and maybe there's a banner that says welcome home and there's really good food and everybody's there and maybe there's some music playing and there's a lot of hugging a lot of rejoicing you're asking how you doing what was it like and you're just expressing your love I'm so thankful you're back home I'm thankful you made it safely I'm thankful you're here man we've missed you so much so glad you're a part I can't so we can do this and this and this and make up for all the time that's lost. If you've ever been to that, it's really encouraging. It's an awesome experience. Jesus says, in the same way. Did you catch that? In the same way. There is something going on in heaven in the same way or in a similar manner to what we're doing here when someone comes to the Lord. But he actually says, in the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven. More rejoicing. Did you catch that? So whatever we are doing, heaven is doing more. However nuts we are going, heaven is doing it more. They are one-upping our level of celebration, at least one-upping it, because there is more rejoicing in heaven. Now, this is where I say, I don't know what to do with this, and I'll just be honest with you. I don't have an answer here. Here's what I can tell you we do. 
What we do when someone repents and comes back to the Lord and we see somebody that is baptized into Christ, we see a lost child of God be found and come back home and saved by grace, all that good stuff. What we do is we will say, some of us will say amen, though it's not very loud. I like to say amen. That's a fun thing for me. We'll clap and then we'll sing a song and then afterward we'll give some hugs and then we'll kind of go and we'll leave. You'll go to work. Give it a couple weeks and out of sight, out of mind, right? Till the next one. What is heaven doing? I don't know exactly what heaven is doing. All I can tell you is that if you read the third story, in the third story, they throw a feast, there's steak, there's music, and there's dancing. In the story, and Jesus says, in the same way, there is more in heaven. Now, I, I don't know what we do with that. This is where I'm being completely transparent. Do we celebrate enough when a child of God is found and comes back home? I don't know that you can celebrate enough. That's the whole point. Now, if you're like, ooh, I don't know what to do with this. This is making me feel a little bit uncomfortable. That means the word of God, it's doing its work. This is the part of the story where sometimes those of us who've been doing this a long time get really comfortable, and then the word of God challenges, and we go, I'm not sure how to that. And I'm not either, to be completely transparent with you. I don't know what the appropriate level of response is. All I can say is if, if they had steak in Luke 15, we got to at least have steak the next time somebody's baptized. I don't know who's bringing it, but I will gladly eat it because they did steak. We'll do steak. If not steak, we'll go brisket. I don't, it just came from a cow. They killed the fatted calf. Hamburgers, there's all taco night. There's all kind of options here. It's got to involve beef, right? That's all we know. I'm joking there. Do you see the point that I make, that I'm trying to make through humor? They threw a feast. Heaven is celebrating. If all we do is say amen, and then after that, we completely forget about it, and we go on after our, with the rest of our lives, and we don't truly celebrate, are we really telling that person this is the most amazing thing we've ever experienced? Because here's what I can tell you happened after the birth of our children. After the birth of both of our children, we were overwhelmed with emotion. It completely changed our life. And, and we had showers leading up to it and parties and all this. And then there were people that came over and they brought food and they brought diapers and all this stuff that will help you kind of get used to this new life with a child. But if all we do as a church family when someone is baptized into Christ is we say amen, we give them a hug, and then we're like, see you, have fun, live a nice spiritual life. If that's all we do, we've missed it. Now, I don't have an answer. I just want to challenge you and put something on your mind for today, for this week, to kind of meditate on this verse, to chew on it, to think on it, and go, what is an appropriate level of response to celebrate a lost person being found? And whatever you come up with, first off, share it with me. Send me an email, send me a text, tell me at the next service. Whenever it kind of hits your brain, come talk to me. Secondly, whatever you come up with, heaven is doing more. Heaven is doing more. And if we are going to be people who truly celebrate lost people being found, then we've got to admit it is the most amazing thing we have ever experienced because it is a lost person being found. It is a person being reborn according to Jesus and entering into a new phase of life as a child, as a baby in Christ. And if you've ever witnessed the birth of a child, you know how it changes you. Even if it's just another family that has a baby and they bring that baby to church for the first time, it's amazing. It's a miracle right in front of us. God brought life into this world. And we pray over that family and we say, we want you to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we celebrate with them. And if we don't do that and more, 
for a lost person being found. Shame on us. Shame on us. Because what gets celebrated gets repeated. What gets celebrated gets repeated. If you've raised children or trained a dog, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like say raising children is the same as training a dog, but there are some similarities here. If you've not raised children, but you've trained a dog, then you know that as that child or dog is growing up, sorry, I'm sorry to insult you children. I'm really, I couldn't come up with a better analogy. But when they do something you like, what do you do? You're like, oh, that was great. That was good. You do. You know you do it to your children and your dog, right? You do the same, it's the exact same thing. You're like, good job, good job, good boy, good girl. You reward them. And so what do they do? They do it again and again because what gets celebrated gets repeated. The question for us as a church family, as leadership, as members, is what do we truly celebrate? Because that is what will be repeated. And if we will truly celebrate lost people being found. It will show one, we have the heart of the Father because this is God's heart on display. I'm telling you, these stories are not just simple little stories with a nice little meaning tacked onto the end. They're designed to challenge us and to make us meditate on them and chew on them for a little while and go, I don't know what to do with that. I'm gonna have to pray about that for a while. And that's what I wanna challenge you to do. It will show that we have the heart of the Father and it will also show that we agree that is the most important and life-changing thing that will ever happen is to, find, to see a lost person being found. I've heard it said, and I heard it yesterday at a wedding, the most important decision you will ever make is giving your life to the Lord. The second most important decision you will ever make is who you spend your life with because that second decision so radically affects your first decision. Here's all I know on that second decision. We, we put a lot of time and money and energy into that second ceremony. Am I right? Yeah, those who have paid for it, you, you can say amen. It's okay. On that first one, are we doing enough? Are we doing enough to make it as important of a moment as it actually is? That's what I want to leave you with for this week. Now, if you're here this morning and you recognize that you are lost and you're ready to be found by Jesus. He's actively searching for you and is ready for you to come home. And we would love to celebrate today in the best way that we know today. If you need to come back home because you had been with the Lord and had walked away and you need to recommit your life to him, I want to encourage you to do that as well. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and sing.